0: I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. The current presidential election in the United States has presented a conundrum of sorts for conservative Christians. The choice of president in the past has been a little easier to make, but in the last two elections for a number of reasons, the choice has been more difficult for Christians. So what considerations should we take into account when voting? What should motivate our vote? God himself established human government. Human government was his idea. And when he established government, he did so for a few very specific purposes. Namely, God designed human government to protect innocent life and punish wrongdoing. The first place where God instituted human government was in the Noahic covenant of Genesis chapter 9, where God said to Noah, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food to you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God's covenant with Noah there in Genesis 9 reveals the purpose of government. It repeats the dominion blessing of Genesis one twenty-eight: Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Yet now, on this side of the fall of man, because of the presence of sin, in God's covenant with Noah, God added additional measures to preserve peace in the midst of sin. And of course, the most notable here is the earthly institution of human government, with its God-given responsibility of capital punishment first outlined there in Genesis 9-6. God gave this responsibility to govern the world and its people to all humankind as a means through which God would sovereignly control man's sinfulness and preserve the world and its order. Later in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 13, Paul reiterates this point when he says in verse 1 that governing authorities have been instituted by God. When governing authorities fulfill responsibilities given to them by God, verse 6 of Romans 13 calls them ministers of God. When they punish wrongdoing, verse 4 says that governing authorities are actually carrying out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, think for a moment about who Paul is talking about there in Romans chapter 13. Who, who is called ministers of God who carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer? Well, he's talking about people like Herod, like Pontius Pilate. He's talking about people who murdered Jesus. He's talking about Tiberius, the emperor of Rome. These were not moral men. But the point here is that even unbelieving, immoral leaders are God's ministers when they do what God designed government to do in protecting innocent life and punishing wrongdoing. And so God, even now, continues to rule universally over all things through this human institution of government that he himself ordained for that purpose. This human institution encompasses all people, believers and unbelievers alike, who exercise dominion over what he has made and attempt to maintain order and stability in the midst of a cursed world. The dominion blessing of Genesis 128 and 9-1, as well as the human institution of, of government in general that God established in conjunction with these blessings, is not redemptive in nature. It's not part of the redemptive rule of God. Rather, human government and God's rule through human government encompasses the manner through which God rules all of common humanity, believers and unbelievers alike. This is what we might call the universal common kingdom of God. The apostle Peter confirms this purpose when he says in 1 Peter 2.14 that governors are sent by God to punish those who do wrong so christian involvement in government including voting in a representational governmental structure should have this fundamental purpose in mind we vote candidates into office who will best protect innocent life and punish wrongdoing christians should not vote on the other hand, so as to somehow redeem the nation or establish Christianity in the nation or or even to defend our so-called rights as Christians. That's, that's not why God instituted government. And really, the only way that any redemption will take place is through the spread of the gospel, not politicians or laws. That's not the purpose of government. Government is not part of what we might call the redemptive kingdom of God. No, it is part of God's universal common kingdom. So our goal in voting or political involvement is not at its core redemptive. We're not, we're not voting for a pastor or to establish a Christian nation. No, we need to vote consistent with God's purpose for human government, namely the protection of innocent life and the punishment of wrongdoing. The purpose of government is not education or welfare on the one hand or establishment of a Christian nation on the other hand. The purpose of government as instituted by God is the protection of human life. If the primary God-ordained purpose of human government, as we have been discussing, is to protect human life, then we ought to vote and be involved in government to whatever degree we can for that purpose. And really then, I believe there is only one central dominant issue of concern in our modern politics because of the God-ordained purpose of government, and that is the murder of unborn human beings. Conservative Christians have universally and throughout history affirmed the full humanity of unborn infants from conception and condemned all forms of abortion. For instance, very early, the the church order, the Didache, says this, and the second commandment of the teaching, you shall not commit murder, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill that which is born. That's from the second century. This is rooted in the fact that God created man in his own image, as he says in Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis 1, we read, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And Genesis 9 makes that the basis for the purpose of government in enacting capital punishment on those who end human life. And what's interesting about Genesis 9 is that it explicitly distinguishes human life from animal and plant life. Humans uniquely have been created in the image of God. Psalm 137.13 13 says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Human life is precious And as is expressed here, God knits us in our mother's womb. Unborn babies are fully human. This is clear in the law in Exodus chapter 21, where it says, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. As the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. So, if there's no death and the, the children are successfully born, then there's a fine. But, verse 23, if there is harm, in other words, if the child is killed, you shall pay life for life. This is a clear example of valuing even unborn life, because unborn babies are fully human. And even what we might call natural law bears this out. Science bears this out. According to the Texas Department of Health Services, at 12 weeks which is little more than halfway to to viability in today's medical reality. Babies are fully formed. The neck is present, the face is well formed, the eyelids close and will reopen in about 24 weeks, tooth buds appear, the arms and legs move, all the body parts and organs are present, and on and on. It is clear both from scripture and from natural law, from science, that human life begins at conception. And therefore, unborn babies are fully human and worthy of all the protection of human government. However, since 1973, no fewer than 60 million human beings have lost their lives due to abortion. That's not an exaggerated number. In fact, it might be underestimated. Since 1973, Americans have killed as many people as were killed during World War II. This is a complete failure to do what God created government to do. God created government to protect life, to punish wrongdoing. And so abortion is the most egregious failure in recent history with regard to human government. So where does this leave us as Christians? Christians in modern times have, of course, a unique role in God-ordained government. Unlike Christians in most history, we actually have a voice in choosing our leaders. This is unusual and something for which we should be thankful. But recently, it seems that some Christians have begun to abdicate their God-given role to vote for government to fulfill its God-given role. Recently, a group declared themselves to be pro-life evangelicals for Biden. They say they they oppose, quote unquote, one issue political thinking because there are other pro-life issues than just being anti-abortion, they say. I've heard other conservative evangelical leaders recently argue for a so-called cradle-to-the-grave pro-life policy that includes more than just being anti-abortion. It also includes certain policies on immigration and taxation and health care, welfare, minimum wage, climate change, and more many of which are more in line with the Democratic platform than the Republican platform. That's their argument. But here's the truth, though. Each one of those other issues that they mention is highly debated as to what effects various policies would have in saving lives. For example, some would argue that a certain welfare policy would save lives by lifting people out of poverty. But then others would insist that that same policy would actually keep people in poverty and lead, lead to more death. Same thing with various views on immigration or climate change or health care and so forth. In other words, these are complicated issues with much debate concerning how they will actually affect lives. But let me tell you what is not complicated. Abortion. Will such-and-such an economic policy or immigration policy save lives? I don't know. It's debatable. I have opinions on it, but I'll admit it's debatable. Will ending abortion save lives? Unquestionably. And here is the truth. One party unashamedly defends abortion, while the other party does not. The Democratic Party platform says this, Democrats are committed to protecting and advancing reproductive health rights and justice we believe unequivocally like the majority of americans that every woman should be able to access high quality reproductive health care services including safe and legal abortions we will repeal they say title 10 domestic gag rule and restore federal funding for planned parenthood just a few days ago joe biden said that he promises to make Roe v. Wade the law of the land. And what about the Republicans? Well, let's just think about the Trump administration. Trump reinstated the Mexico City policy to ban any U.S. foreign aid to organizations that perform abortions. He overturned an Obama regulation that Obama enacted two days before Trump took office that prevented states from defunding abortion service providers. He signed a Congressional Review Act bill to allow states to restrict Planned Parenthood funding. Trump was the first U.S. president to single out Planned Parenthood for defunding on the first page of his 2018 budget, and he has continued to do so each year. He also regulated Title X funding, which provides funding to family planning services, in such a way that it prevents funding an organization that also provides abortion. He restricted the use of human fetal tissue procured from abortions in medical research. He is the first sitting president to address the annual March for Life in 2020. He has appointed two pro-life Supreme Court justices. And by the way, in 2018, the Supreme Court overturned California's universal abortion coverage mandate. He has appointed over 200 pro-life federal judges. And of course, now he has appointed Amy Coney Barrett. Now listen, despite Trump as a person, and whatever you might think about him, it is not an exaggeration to state that the Trump administration has enacted more pro-life policies than any administration since Roe v. Wade. There is still much to be done. I wish they would do more. But the Trump administration has unquestionably prevented the murder of unborn babies. So then, of course, the essential question is, how should this affect voting in the United States of America? Just a few days ago, Ramesh Panuru and Robert George wrote an article for National Review that I think helpfully answers this question. They say the individual pro-life voter is not responsible for ending abortion because he cannot achieve that goal. He is obligated, however, to do what he can, which is to cast his vote in solidarity with the unborn victims of abortion. Because the modern Democratic Party has become ever more committed to abortion and more hostile to legal protection for unborn children at any stage, pro-lifers who agree with Democrats on issues other than abortion have sometimes labored to find ways to rationalize voting for Democratic candidates who pledge to ensure that unborn children are exposed to lethal injustice. The pro-lifer who votes against Biden may not keep him from winning, He will, however, at least refuse to join in tolerating a massive violation of human rights for hundreds of thousands of victims of direct and intentional lethal violence. They go on to say, If one acknowledges the gravity, scale, and scope of the injustice of abortion and of a legal regime that denies to an entire class of human beings the most basic of human rights, thus exposing them to lethal violence, then it is hard to imagine what proportionate reasons there could be for joining one's will to the desire of a supporter of it for greater political power. Listen, make no mistake. If one party had pro-slavery policy as part of its official platform, Christians would rightly so declare with authority that to vote for a candidate in such a party would be immoral. The chattel slavery of early America was without question biblically immoral. It was based on the belief that some humans are not actually fully human. And I agree, to vote for a candidate who supported such a horrible crime against humanity would be immoral for a Christian. But as horrendous as American slavery was, and it was, it does not compare to the murder of innocent unborn human beings. How can Christians, who would rightly refuse to vote for a pro-slavery candidate, defend voting for a pro-abortion candidate? This is a difficult election year. There is no question about that. I do not like much of the rhetoric of both candidates and both parties. Both candidates have evidenced willingness to lie regularly. Both candidates have used absolutely abhorrent, vicious rhetoric. And I wish the Republican Party would do more to end abortion once and for all. But at the end of the day, the issue is not really complicated. We should vote to save as many unborn lives as possible. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.